two Social Security provisions have long rankled federal employees and others in public service. One is called the Windfall Elimination Provision, the WEP. The other is the Government Pension Offset, the GPO. They were established decades ago on the idea that for a portion of their careers, people with certain jobs were not covered by Social Security. Now a bipartisan House bill would revoke WEP and GPO. For details, we turn to one of the co-sponsors, Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. Good to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. And tell us exactly what this bill would do precisely. Absolutely. So more than 50,000 Virginians are impacted by these provisions. You mentioned them, the WEP and the GPO. And what it means in reality is that so many retirees here in Virginia and across the country are seeing reduced uh, payments through Social Security because of these provisions. So the Social Security Fairness Act basically recognizes the sacrifice that these federal public servants have made, and it eliminates these provisions that reduces their payment. We've got more than 158 co-sponsors since we just introduced it again this Congress. And, you know, just for kind of context in terms of what we're talking about in terms of reduction, the windfall elimination provision reduces a public servant's retirement benefits by up to about $500 per month. And that's $500 per month that that uh, employee, that retiree would otherwise be eligible for, if not for this provision. Um, The government pension offset, this relates to spouses um, and survivor benefits through the Social Security program. And in some cases, uh, survivors of federal um, employers are um, uh, are receiving a benefit that can be reduced by up to two thirds of their monthly pension for what they should have had their late spouse not been a federal employee subject to this GPO. And it's outside, very real in terms of the impact on on individuals. Sure, and beyond Virginia, there's about two million federal retirees your estimate is that are affected by these or or people that are, and there's another, what, close to a million that come under the GPO? Yeah, that's right. All right. And would this apply to people now retired? They would get a bump or is it for people that are under these provisions from the past and when they retire, it'll kick in? So this would, if the bill were to pass tomorrow, it would go into effect next year. And so that would mean that moving forward, anyone who's previously seen reductions in their benefits would see that full amount. If it's the $500 per month in the case of WEP or up to a, you know, a, a two-thirds reduction in the case of GPO, they would see that change um, immediately beginning next year. And by the way, is there a Congressional Budget Office score for this one? Do we have any idea what the total cost to the government would be? I can't imagine it's that vast. The scoring on this, and I'll get you the exact numbers, but when we're looking at issues of fairness, right, so we shouldn't be looking to kind of reduce payouts on the backs of federal employees as a gimmick by which we're trying to potentially reduce outbound dollars. But this all comes from within the Social Security program, right? These are dollars that people paid into the program paid into Social Security, and now are not being able to receive the benefits that they are if they had had the same job, but in the private sector that they would be eligible for. So there is a minor impact on Social Security in terms of the the time frame of kind of trajectory as it relates to Social Security's long-term viability and stability. But that's another conversation as well, right? There are clearly we need to make sure that into decades into the future, Social Security is a strong program and fulfilling its promise, but trying to eke out dollars here or there as it relates to 
the retirement benefits that federal employees are getting or retired public school teachers or retired firefighters. Um, that's not the way that that we try to save money for Social Security because these individuals paid into it and they should be able to get it out the same way that you know someone in the private sector or in a similar job function outside of the government would have been able to do and as somebody outside of the government is able to do. We're speaking with Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, who represents Virginia's 7th District. And you bring up a point I think is often missed. I think the assumption is that people that had those jobs back then, like CSRS employees, did not get Social Security but did not pay into it either. But you're saying that people actually did pay into Social Security for those covered jobs but are getting the reduction in the payout. That's right. And so it's a reduction in the payout based on calculations for the GPO, for the WEP. But I mean, the, the bill is rather simply titled the Social Security Fairness Act because people paid into these systems and paid into these programs and they're seeing their benefits cut. And it shouldn't be. It is an, a really significant detriment to people who dedicated their lives to public service uh, as federal employees or as firefighters or police officers or public school teachers. And just a technical question. I mean, for the average person in the private sector, what you get in Social Security at the end of a working life is proportional to what you paid in. So how will this all be figured? Is that something that's going to be incumbent on Social Security to go back through their payment histories, which they have on record there, and then determine what their actual payout will be henceforth? So the functionality is if the bill were to pass the House tomorrow, then move forward in the Senate and get to the president's desk. And again, we have more than 250 co-sponsors. Last Congress, we had gotten close to 300. So we know if the bill were to come before the House of Representatives, it would pass. We're working to build back up our co-sponsorship. But it would go into effect next year. And essentially, it would just remove those provisions that are subtracting dollars out of somebody's social security payments. So there are not kind of extravagant calculations that need to be made. It's no longer deducting unfairly because of this WEP provision or this GPO provision. Got it. Okay. And uh, speaking of those number of co-sponsors, these are both sides of the aisle that are behind us. That's right. This bill is wholly bipartisan. I've previously worked with my co-lead, Rodney Davis, a Republican from Illinois. He left Congress at the end of last Congress and Garrett Graves, who has been an incredibly supportive member of Congress on this issue, Republican from Louisiana. He's now taken up the helm. And so Garrett and I have partnered on this. And we have Democrats, Republicans, people across the country, across the political spectrum, supporting this legislation. Again, last year, uh, last Congress, we got uh, up to about 300 co-sponsors in total. And uh, this Congress, we're, we're working to do the same. So it is wholly bipartisan, frankly, because people across the country, Republicans, Democrats, nonpartisans, East Coast, West Coast, and everywhere uh, across the country are impacted by this by these provisions. And And, the Social Security Fairness Act would rectify that for so many of the people that we represent. And what about the Senate? So we're working to make sure that uh, it'll move forward in the Senate. But I think certainly the the thing I can control is the number of co-sponsors that we get in the House side. Um, And anyone, frankly, who is aware of this issue that wants to do advocacy to their senators, certainly that's an encouraging uh, effort to take on. Um, But in Unfortunately, we have, despite the co-sponsorship, been unable to get this bill a vote in the House. But our goal is to get this bill a vote for the House and with a resounding 
a level of bipartisan support, make sure that it's basically raising the attention uh, and garnering the attention of, of so many senators. Certainly looking at the level of bipartisan support that it, that it receives among House members, the path would be clear for many of their senators from their states to also support. Um, but we're, we're working in concert to try and garner additional support on the Senate side. But really, it's a matter of getting a vote in the House first on this. Right. And there are so many priorities right now. You're all arguing about the debt limit and the debt ceiling, and people are already talking about things they want to put in the National Defense Authorization Act. I mean, it's pretty busy. I mean, it's only, what, just about March at this point, but yet you know how the time goes. So you're optimistic this session there will be a vote? I am optimistic this session. You know, notably, the the debt ceiling and averting catastrophe by ensuring that we do not default as a nation is should be everyone's top priority. But Congress should be able to do multiple things at a time. And certainly working on the National Defense Authorization Act, working on the Farm Bill, uh, both of which are must piece must pass pieces of legislation this Congress. That is work that must be done and will be done. But it can't be used as an excuse for not taking a vote on a piece of legislation that that frankly has received so much support in the past for a piece of legislation. We know the votes are there and a piece of legislation that matters. It matters to people who are retired now. It matters to people who are on Social Security now. Um, and, and it is an issue that is urgent and one that I'm going to continue pushing for. And this is one where clearly the federal employee unions would support it. But this support goes way up the ranks to the higher level people because in that sense, everybody's in the same boat with the WEP and the GPO. This is a, a piece of legislation that has received support, certainly from federal unions and employee organizations, uh, localized organizations of firefighters and teachers. In fact, among the, the best advocates on Capitol Hill, the Capitol Police officers um, in their off-duty time lobby for this because their retirees are impacted by it as well. So it's, you know, across the board advocacy groups for federal employees uh, as well as state employees uh, continue their advocacy because this is an issue that impacts public servants across the country. Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger represents Virginia's 7th District. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, along with a link to more information about the bill. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, 
my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Looking Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Looking Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 
50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.